Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, this is Emma, production and experience director at the Webby Awards. You might remember me from the old ads, but I'm back. Are you as impressed by the work of the Webby winners as we are? The work honored at the Webby Awards is changing the future of the internet, and you can have access to all the deets behind it. Sign up to the Webby Gallery and Index to uncover insights, inspiration, and trends for your work or just for fun. You'll get the ability to discover innovative projects from around the world that are awesome online, a database of credits to check out who made all that groundbreaking digital work, Trends and insights not available outside of our database, including major categories like fashion, sports, and social, and the advanced power of search. So if you're ahead of us and want to find something we didn't mention, you can do that too. Make sure you're in the know and sign up for free at the top of our page at webbyawards.com. Hey, this is Krista, social media manager at the Webby Awards. In a year where it's hard to remember what hour it is, let alone what day, I'm here to remind you of the deadline to enter work in the 25th annual Webby Awards. The Webby Awards final entry deadline is this Friday, December 18th. Enter now at webbyawards.com to make sure your work is viewed by the best minds across the internet and has a chance to win a Webby next May. We have a ton of new ways to honor your work this year, including brand new categories for virtual and remote, podcasts, software, social, and more. Head over to webbyawards.com to learn more. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Ponder horizons beyond easy reach. Make what matters for people. Design is love made visible. Creativity is born from constraints. Hey there, and welcome back to the Webby Podcast. Before COVID-19 swept across the U.S., the digital divide was already quite great in this country. Well-funded school districts get first dibs on laptops and other technologies for learning, while poorly funded districts struggle to meet their students' needs. But the pandemic has exacerbated that problem tenfold, as nationwide school closures led to remote and distance learning measures with many students across the U.S. and the world lacking the proper devices to fully participate. My next guest, Megan Steckley, is leading the charge to provide underserved students across Texas with a laptop. She is the CEO of CompuDopt, a nonprofit that provides students with refurbished computers as well as educational opportunities surrounding STEM. If you're skeptical of the real impact they have, here's a stat. Since the start of the pandemic, CompuDopt has given 17,000 computers to students in need, and the number is only growing. We started off talking about how CompuDop started off on their mission. We've been around for 13 years, closing the digital divide and continuing on strong. You know, predominantly our work sits across a mission to provide technology access and education to underserved youth, which is just two pillars of, of what is really a three pillar issue. And so historically, the way their organization was founded, Jonathan Osha, who owns um, a boutique IP law firm, 
he really realized that the corporate life cycle of a computer is only two to three years. And then most of the time, this equipment gets shelved and put in a closet or it's sent to landfill. And while it may not work in a corporate environment anymore, it's great for a young learner who may not have access to a computer at home. And so that's kind of how CompuDopt was born. So we're still running that program. It's called our computer adoption program. And actually that has been this insane year that we've had, this extraordinary time that everyone has experienced. That's what we've really enhanced through our work this year. We, we've turned that into a computer drive-through. And while normally we serve about 3,000 students a year just in our Houston site, in the last 10 months, we will close out the year serving about 21,000 households and having added eight additional cities that we now work in across the United States. We're super excited and proud about that and uh, also a little bit exhausted. Um, And then uh, outside of that, we we have four core education programs, and that's really about addressing the education side of the digital divide and and connecting students to skills that are relevant for the workforce of today and tomorrow. So let's talk a little bit about where you started on the computer adoptions. And you mentioned Houston. Mm -hmm. Um, You started in Houston. And are you predominantly still in Texas or are you in other states now as well? No, we are in other states. So um, right before the pandemic, actually, we had our board of directors sort of mandated national growth, which was really exciting for me in particular. We had put all of the groundwork in place to be able to promote our chief of staff into leading our Houston office. And that allowed me to say yes to everything that kind of came our way this year. So we're now operating in Chicago, Covington, Kentucky, Corpus Christi, Dallas, Fort Worth, Galveston, Houston, Los Angeles, New Orleans, Washington, D.C. And I'm hoping we get to put New York and L.A. on the map in uh, in January and you know, you heard it here first, but we're also talking to a company, a couple of partners about potentially doing a project in India. So wow. we may be international by this time next year. That's amazing. Yeah. And so how do you look at, I guess, computer adoption to some extent is like a local business, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to say the marketing, but the idea is that these these local businesses that have these computers that are on the shelf or in the storage room or whatever, that they're actually helping their local community and local youth with getting those computers as opposed to just like anybody getting it somewhere. Yeah, a thousand percent. So I think what one of the things that I love about our model is that it really is kind of like its own whole ecosystem of an operation, right? So, you know, these these corporate entities are buying devices that they need, they get used within their company, and then, uh, you know, they come over to us, we recondition them, they feel like brand new, pretty much. By the time we're, we're distributing them back out to kids, it, it goes directly back into the community. And a lot of times we can also leverage the relationship that that corporate partner has with other community organizations to help target families that are, you know, have maybe higher or specific needs for technology access, you know, and then equipment will either come back to us or anything that gets donated to us that we can't give out to kids goes to a recycler as opposed to into a landfill. And, you know, we kind of go from there. So I I love that it sort of makes that full circle and really has a truly localized impact. Tell me about some of the barriers of getting between the computer inside on the shelf in the corporate office and getting it to a child who needs it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a great question. You know, as I would be remiss as a nonprofit leader not to mention that like this doesn't happen without funding, right? It's great to donate computers, but of course we do need dollars against it too, and that is a barrier. I think too, you know, 
there's a lot of concerns about data security, of yeah. course. And I think there's sort of a general perception that if companies give to a for-profit recycler, that their processes are somehow better than they are than giving it to a nonprofit. But, but we actually wipe all of the devices up to the same Department of Defense standards that they do using the same software that they use. Wow. And uh, so there really isn't isn't a security risk in that space. And uh, you know, if we get in to talk to the IT guys, uh, they they usually come around on our side and and kind of see how it works. But but that's that's a primary barrier. Mm-hmm. And then I'd say too, like making sure that we're actually reaching the population that we want to reach, is also really important, right? So our the computers that we distribute are completely free. They're the families to keep happily ever after. The majority are laptops that run Windows 10. And uh, we offer two years of free tech support. And interestingly, one of the things that's really difficult for us is that when we contact schools or community organizations to say like, hey, would you help us get the word out? Or can we partner with you and, and give these devices to your families? Sometimes they don't respond or the feedback is like, where's the catch, right? Like it's, this has to be kind of too good to be true. And, uh, and we get that from the families too, when they register directly, you know, they may send us an email and say like, is this a scam or is this spam? And, and, you know, and we're writing back going, no, really like, this is what we do. This is the problem that we solve. This computer really is yours. It really is free. And, uh, yeah. Do you have some way of sort of judging like what percentage of the population that needs these that you're reaching? in say Houston or something? Cause it's hard to figure out how many people need it. Right. And I guess I asked that question because ultimately that's, that's also sort of giving you a sense of how effective and how big the problem is you're trying to solve, I would guess. Right. So we've done quite a bit of research on this uh, actually. So we know that there's a Pew research center study that came out in 2019 demonstrated that 46% of low income families don't have access to a computer um, at home and by computer, we mean a keyboard enabled device, right? So not a smartphone, not a tablet. And uh, 44% of those families don't have access to a solid broadband connection either. You know, with, with the pandemic, obviously there has been a spotlight shown on the digital divide as a critical issue that needs to be solved in particular around distance learning, but this isn't new and it's also not solved. Right. And so when we talk about low income populations, there's 13 million households with children in the United States that don't have access to a computer at home. And I think that number in 2020 is is absolutely shocking. We hear from some funders and and some partners sometimes like, yeah, but what about school based devices? Right. They're getting computers in schools. Right. And, And that's true. They are, especially with the pandemic. Right. There's been a lot of school districts that as the landscape of education has shifted, They've done a good job identifying sources of those and getting those out to students. But the catch is that more often than not, these devices are content restricted because of E-rate funds, meaning that, you know, they can access distance learning resources, but they can't really use this device for anything else. And for the families that we're talking about, we're really talking about families that are, you know, for example, you know, earning maybe $40,000 a year for a family of four. And the majority of our families are actually living at less than that, right? The majority of our families are living at $20,000 a year for a family of four. This is the only computer in their home. 
the school-based device in a lot of cases. And so if mom and dad need to attend a telehealth appointment, if they need to go to eviction court, if they're trying to just do research about other social service opportunities that might be out there that would help lift them up or workforce skill development programs that operate on a different WebEx platform, for example, this device is not the answer. Right. And so the divide still exists in those households, even though they technically have a device from the school. You said the reason for that was E-rating. What's that? So there's federal E-rate funding for schools to buy technology equipment, but there's some requirements and stipulations that the content is restricted to keep kids, you know, accessing. I mean, you know, nobody, nobody wants kids watching porn, obviously. So there's some real positives behind it, of course. Um, but at the same time, you know, when you're talking about solving the digital divide, those devices are, are not the solution. Right. right? It's, not, it's not a long-term sustainable solution. I mean, is it blocking families from doing just like even mundane things like looking up recipes? In some cases, yes, right? So wow. like uh, YouTube may be blocked and social media may be blocked. And, you know, interestingly, one of the things that we found over the years of, of doing this work is like, you know, this is more than a computer, you know, it breaks down social barriers. And, you know, when I first started this job five years ago, the first adoption session I went to, there was a young mother who came up to me at the end of the session and she said, thank you. And she was kind of tearful and she shook my hand and I said, oh, you know, you're welcome. Go have a great weekend. And, and she kind of stopped me and she said, I can tell that you can't quite understand what impact this is making for my family. And she goes, you know, I'm a single mom. I have three kids. I work two jobs and I work nights. And my daughter, we were at a middle school and she goes, and my, my daughter after school every day, she picks up her brother and sister from the elementary school across the street and she walks them home. She's the one that puts dinner on the table. She helps with homework. She helps with bath time. She puts them to bed. And then by that time I'm home and it's nine or 10 at night. And if she needs to do homework that requires a computer, like she can't do it. It's too late to go to a library or a friend's house or, you know, I think her grand, their grandmother had a computer. And so instead she has to get up extra early, get herself to school, hope that the computer lab is open and do her, her homework in that period of time. And she misses their only family time together. And she's like, you know, so for, for us, this is, this is so much more, right? This, this gives us our family time back and, and everybody can use it. And I think that that story for me has has resonated obviously for the last five years it still kind of gives me chills and just illustrates that you know for these families that that's a reality and it is much more than just having a device to do something on you know i think this idea of the digital divide has been something that people have talked about for a long time actually i mean certainly like I, even at the beginning of what i would call like the you know modern web era or the consumer web areas sort of in the like mid late 90s so already a thing people were talking about but back then like you know lots of people had computers but like if you didn't have one while it wasn't as fun or something it wasn't it wasn't quite the it, you know it just didn't have such the binary effect that it has today which is being essentially like completely excluded from a lot of society if you don't have some sort of device mm-hmm has the problem gotten much, much worse since then? Because I think what happens is people see so many young people with phones and iPads and like everybody assumes, oh, everybody, uh, prices on some like on like phones and stuff like that have, have really come down. I think people think that like this isn't actually a problem anymore. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're right. And I think that pre-pandemic, this is something that we, we heard from donors that it's almost unbelievable that at this day and age, we really are still facing this problem at such a scale. You said 13 million families in the United States, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, 13 million families in the United States. And actually, it has gone up, right? There was a, a another Pew Research study that I think was done in either 2013 or 2015 that measured similar things, and it really had the, the statistics for this same demographic population, right, low income, which is 200% of the poverty line or, or less. And I, I think it had it closer to 30% of households as opposed to 46, right? So a 16% increase in that period of time. And, you know, I think that it's, it's the digital divide is also not just about hardware, right? That's one element of it. Mm. I think that connectivity is another, is the next critical leg, obviously. And so being able to have access to high speed, reliable internet where you can, you know, make video calls and, and, and chat and that kind of thing. And then of course, like if you, if you have a device, you do know, need to know how to use it. Right. And I think the other thing that has grown over the last several years with respect to the digital divide is that, you know, technology jobs are the number one source of new employment in the United States with over 500,000 current job openings. And, you know, we've been talking about STEM education for years and, and how critical STEM education is. But if you actually look at the STEM job market itself, technology jobs make up 58% of all those STEM jobs that we've been talking about for years. And yet only 8% of our college graduates are electing fields in a technology related major. And so there's this incredible gap, right? There's a, this incredible knowledge gap. Um, and a lot of that, if you, if you kind of back out the research stems simply from the fact that like early in their education, let's say elementary, middle, and yes, high school, but by that time it's almost too late, you know, we're not introducing students to technology skills that will be critical for their futures. And, and we're not giving them the tools and resources needed to go, Hey, I'm good at this, right? Or this is a, this is a thing you want to get into, right? You ask a middle schooler, what they want to be when they grow up, they're probably more likely to say like DJ than biomedical engineer or soccer player or football player, right? And sure. and some of that is just the opportunity to be exposed to technology and technology education initiatives and making it a priority in the home, mm. right? And I think that's the other piece that makes people feel like this is a problem that's solved is that for the majority of people who are sort of thinking about that, they probably have jobs that provide them with a computer. And so they're, they're using their work-based device. But if you think about your own home, take away all of your work-based anythings, you know, how many computers do you still have? I, I personally, this is almost shameful, right? <laughs> I personally probably still have like four laptops and it's me and my cat at home. And, and so it's, it is, even for somebody that's doing this work, it's a little bit hard for me to, to go, well, well, how can a family not have any, anything? Right. right. So two follow-up questions there, I guess one, the first one is, you, you know, you, you touched on in the beginning, I think you all do a bunch of work on the education part of this as well, mm-hmm. right? And yeah, you call it. I think it's you have like two programs: an early adopters program, and I think you call it a STEAM program instead of STEM. Is that right? We do. So, so we actually have four programs. We four have programs. Um, early adopters, which is our elementary school program. It's it's actually the one I'm most excited about right now because we just redid it. We turn all the kids into astronauts, and uh, they open a gold envelope at at the start, and it contains a Mad Lib, and 
and that kind of lays out what the activities are going to look like for the rest of the program. So for example, you know, Joe and Bob are on a rocket to Pluto and the first planet they they pass is blue and has like pink marshmallows floating around it. The first project activity we do then is teaching kids how to build in augmented reality, you know, a blue planet with marshmallows floating around it. And then we give them this device, it's called a merge cube. It's kind of like a six-sided fancy QR code dice. Mm -hmm. And when they hold it up in front of their, their camera, they're actually holding the blue planet with marshmallows flying around it that they just created, right? Mm -hmm. So it's about making that link between, you know, not all technology is on the screen, right? It's also can be held in your hand. They're pro using some sort of program or to, to, to code that on a computer that you've, I guess, gotten to that at some point, right? Yes. Yeah. And all of our programs, they get, they get a computer with, with the education stuff that we run in. And uh, sometimes they even get some, you know, this merge cube and some of these other smaller pieces of tech like microbit. But all of our education programs are really targeted towards, you know, project-based learning. It's enrichment. So it should be fun. It shouldn't feel like school. It's really about inciting the curiosity of students and, you know, we, we want to be building the next generation of innovators and we want it to come from them. And we want them to have a voice in, in their own education and get inspired early on and see themselves as successful learners. And, you know, our theory of change for closing that, you know, 50 to 8% gap that I mentioned before is that if we start early enough and we continue supporting students through their educational careers to really invest in themselves in their own curiosities and build their learning intrinsically that it will then lead them down pathways where they will enter technology related fields and careers because they do see themselves as successful those pathways don't seem so hard mm. and they know what they look like and they're excited about them you know I, just as we still continue to talk a little bit about the digital divide there's a lot of organizations that are trying to solve this very large problem Yours is one of them. You're doing incredible work. And I want to talk a little bit more in a second about what you touched on in the beginning, how much more work you're doing because of the pandemic. But do you think ultimately we solve this problem through independent organizations and, and nonprofits? And is that the solution? Or is there some bigger systemic government role or individual you know, voter role to, to get this into a better place? Yeah, I think the answer to that is is complex um, yeah, and is probably sure. all of the above. Right. I personally believe the internet should be a utility, right? Broadband should be a utility at this point. We need it for everything. It's a safety thing. I think that hardware access probably will be solved by smaller individuals, but the government can play a larger role, right? Like, um, you know, the federal government retires 500,000 devices a year. You know, that's wow. a lot that's of kids to be able to serve. You know, and I think if governments were open to freeing up their resources towards organizations like ours, and we, we are not alone out there. There's there are at least 81 that I know of <laughs> across the United States that are doing really similar work to what we're doing, where they recondition devices and get them back out to families. So there's probably a local solution. And, and if you're not, I'll come, right? So pick up the phone and call me. Um, I do think that this is incredibly solvable. Right. Thir 13 million is a, is a giant number, you know, when we think about handing a computer out one at a time. But when we think about our overall global population size or national population size, 
and how many computers we each have in our closet gathering dust, right? I actually think we could almost crowdsource solve this in you know one to two years if we had kind of enough money and and enough of a marketing campaign to to get people to refurbish their own devices and and, and you know set them up at drop off points, for example. It'll take everyone, honestly. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. What are the factors that put somebody on the wrong side of the digital or a family on the wrong side of the digital divide? There's some obvious stuff, I think, there around like household income, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. It's probably not all of it, right? I mean, I'd say that poverty is probably the most significant barrier. Uh-huh. And, and, and sometimes it's not, you know, I think a lot of times in the United States, we, pre- we present poverty as like the bottom of the barrel. But it can also look, you know, the same barriers that are faced by those families are the same barriers sometimes that are faced by families that are living paycheck to paycheck and maybe fully employed and have a house and, and all of those things. And from an external perspective, look reasonably successful, but maybe there's a major medical expense, right, that comes up. And so that year, and then their computer breaks. And I think I've, you know, I've heard that story myself personally, probably 20 to 30 times this year, particularly with people getting laid off or furloughed where they just, they just can't afford a computer for the kids. So I think the other barriers that they're facing may also include, you know, kind of where they're living, maybe to go back to your earlier question too, about, you know, how can we solve this? I think from an educational perspective and from a voter government community engagement perspective like it's there needs to be a change in the in the educational landscape that prioritizes workforce development and that prioritizes technology education and skill development and that is willing to invest in teachers and 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 trainers so that they know how to incorporate these tools into in the classroom and into teaching and i think too that that's another barrier right so so there's community members who who may be slightly more affluent who maybe even have a computer at home, but they either live in a neighborhood where there wasn't infrastructure put in for broadband connectivity because it's a historically low-income community, or there isn't as strong of independent funding for their schools, and so their schools can't afford for enrichment curriculum to come in. I think those those would probably be some other barriers that maybe aren't as typically top of mind. I would imagine there's families where you're able to get a computer to them, but then they don't have, as you're saying, they don't have broadband or maybe even internet access. How do you, how do you handle that? Yeah. So that depends city by city and who our partners are, but typically the way this has been working during COVID, for example, is we build computer drive-throughs and families come into our drive-through and we scan a, a unique barcode that we've sent them so that we know we're serving the family we intended to serve. We put a computer in their car, 
off they go. And then we follow up with a text message that is basically a welcome to your computer guide and information on free and low cost internet resources that are tailored to the public subsidies that that family may qualify for and their specific neighborhood. Right. And uh, so we do that through another organization's website called everyoneon.org. They're another nonprofit. And essentially, they're an aggregator that, you know, on the back end is finding all of this information out and then, you know, kind of has an algorithm that would match families to that. But what's really important about that is that, uh, you know, a lot of communities kind of say, like, here's a hotspot. Well, you know, five people in a household on one hotspot is not going to make, you know, Zoom education work. You know, maybe it kind of gets you through a day, but it probably doesn't get you through as a sustainable solution to what your mm. family needs are. Yeah. And so, you know, AT&T and Comcast both offer low cost internet options, about $10 a month for 25 megabit broadband speeds. And, uh, you know, there's there's all kinds of information around that available. And, and that's usually what we share with families. Let's talk a little bit more about, you talked about this, I'm there, which is I want to follow up. Tell me about how the work has changed during the pandemic. We went from 3,000 students per year and we'll close out the year serving 21,000 households this year with our, you know, 10-man team. That's amazing. It, yeah, it is. I feel like I've earned all of 2021 as vacation. Um, but uh, no, it certainly has been a team effort. So so in March, uh, when, when kind of all of this hit the U.S., right, we... We could see that this was going to be a critical problem, that families were gonna need devices faster than ever. And so we kind of looked at what we had on hand and said, okay, how can we hand out computers faster? And historically we've done this in batches of about 50 at a time with some digital skills training at a school in person. And uh, we decided to build a drive-through and essentially it's a lottery system. So families can go online to our website, they click a big blue button, they fill out some basic demographic information, they choose the location nearest them, and then they're registered for the lottery. And then based on the inventory we have available, we randomly select recipients from that list. So it's kind of equitable. And we built a text messaging platform that, that sends these families a text message, says like, hey, you were selected, click here to RSVP for a date and time to come to a drive-thru and pick up your computer. And so, you know, then they follow that process and, and you know, they arrive, we scan their unique barcode, so we're tracking the correct family. They drive in, we give them a computer, off they go. And then we provide that internet information that I mentioned. So within the first 24 hours of building this uh, lottery in Houston, my executive director for our Houston office and I only shared this on our personal Facebook pages because we weren't sure how it was going to go and we didn't want it to go too far. And we had over 25,000 people register in the first oh 24 God. hours. Jeez, which is great and also scary, right? <laughs> yeah, especially because we had like 400 computers ready. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of unbelievable. And so we realized we needed more computers and that this this was going to catch fire, right? And I think we were on every news station in Houston. You know, we did a CNN thing. We, eventually we were on the Today Show this year. Like the media has been incredibly helpful in getting the word out about um, how this works. And then we finally had cities starting to call us and say like, will you come here, right? City of New Orleans was the first one. And so we were in a position where we could say, well, yeah, actually, this is a really, really replicable model. It really only takes two people 
you know, we, we weren't going to get inventory through our normal pipeline of, of taking corporate computers because they were all kind of held hostage in office buildings, right, or redeployed so workforce could work from home. And so we found national refurbishment partners, and, and Microsoft was a great help in identifying those. And they were selling us computers at reconditioned computers still, but they were selling us computers at almost cost. And because supply chains around the world are still backed up with devices, this was really one of the only viable ways to get computers to families quickly. Hmm. And uh, yeah, so so within the last eight months, we've we've added eight additional cities across the United States. And we're still growing and, you know, our costs are only $275 per household. That covers everything, the computer, the distribution, two years of tech support, everything. Oh, that's incredible. Now that there's so many more students who need computers for, I mean, I think everybody, everybody is sort of connected <laughs> to some, some young person somewhere who's now Zoom class, doing Zoom classes or Google Classroom classes yep. or whatever it is. Is there like a new part of the digital divide that's forming around people's ability to learn through through mm-hmm. Zoom? Like, is that something you're thinking about and hearing about at all? I just, it's such a huge change. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would imagine that some people learn that way better than others. I don't know if it's something you've all thought about. Like, do we need more education around, like, how do you, how do you mm-hmm. teach through Zoom and how do you learn through Zoom and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, we, we have had some conversations around this, and we're sort of talking around it in the space of digital inclusivity, right? Because we all know that kids learn in different ways, right? We all know that we learn in different ways. And yeah, Zoom is not ideal for everybody. Um, I think we also need to acknowledge that this hasn't been how teachers have taught, and it's not how teachers have been trained to teach. And right. there are teachers that are going to be more technically inclined and some that aren't. And so I think that's where it needs to start, right? It needs to start at, you know, helping teachers, one, have basic literacy skills for the teaching tools that we're putting in front of them. And then I think it's, it is also like, how do you keep students engaged? Um, and there's also an equity question that we've had some discussions around about like, well, you know, um, schools are taking attendance by like making sure that kids... and watching engagement by making sure their kids have their video cameras on or their, sorry, their web cameras on. And, you know, not every kid with a computer is going to have a webcam, first of all, but also some kids are living in situations where they don't, you know, they're embarrassed, right? Or they're just uncomfortable and they don't want to be turning their webcam on, which is completely reasonable. And so, you know, how do you take a trauma-informed approach to saying like, we want to track engagement, but also honor that this student doesn't feel comfortable with that. And that's not a mentally healthy thing to ask them to do. And there's also teachers who are, it's hard to teach people that you can't see at the same time. There's right. great reasons for mm-hmm. why people don't want to be seen as well, but it's, it's, it's challenging on both sides. I'm sure. It, yeah. It, it's quite, you know, a rock and a true rock and hard place. Right. So, you know, what are, what are going to be the alternatives for that and for, you know, supporting both sides of that coin and situation. And I think ultimately in the short term, it's going to be up to the teacher in their classroom and their schools and to the families and how they're willing and able to support their students, right? Because a lot of parents are also working outside the home. So, you know, we know all of those challenges. But to your to your previous question, I think it, it is identified almost a fourth leg of the stool that they need to have access to the device. They need connectivity. 
they need to know how to use the tool, like basic digital literacy skills, as well as technology education broadly. But there also needs to be adaptations for digital inclusion that are appropriate in sort of a distance learning space yeah. in particular. I was just want to wrap up, but um, I want to hear a little bit about what you're thinking about for CompuDopt in the future. Um, you've had a big year for all of us. I hope we don't have to have another big year like that <laughs> next in 2021. I'm sure some of it will be. But at the same time, there's some silver lining here, which is you've learned how to scale your operation and you've learned how to give out computers more efficiently and at lower costs. And that's, that's something that's not going to go away. I would imagine whether there's a pandemic or not, you'll, you'll have those new skills and new resources and better cost controls and stuff forever, which is a great, which is a great thing given what you're doing. Yeah. Um, how are you thinking about, you know, the future for CompuDopt? You know, world domination is legit on my to-do list. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's going very well, right? Like I'm, I'm going very well, good progress, but you know, on, on a serious note, you know, I really believe that, that nonprofits should be in the business of putting themselves out of business. And that means that we will have solved the problem. And so I, I intend for our organization to continue to push and drive as hard as we've driven this year and to continue to grow and scale exponentially and to be responsive to communities that need us both on a hardware delivery side and addressing the other parts of the digital divide until this problem is solved. And uh, we are going to be adding a direct service connectivity solution uh, within the new year, which is really exciting. What's that? So uh, being able to provide connectivity direct for families as opposed to just refer them to other, you know, uh, commercial network providers, right? And we're, okay. we're not totally sure what that's to- going to look like, right? Because it really is important that families do have choice that's appropriate for where they are. So it'll be a mixed solution, right? They'll, they'll, you know, maybe they're opting in for a hotspot, maybe they're opting in for, you know, sponsored service for a year of free internet or, I, you know, mm-hmm. potentially satellite, right? Like I'm really passionate about getting out and serving rural communities which are so traditionally underserved by, by nonprofits. And, you know, I think that, I think we will see a shift towards rural development um, as a result of COVID um, mm. myself and, and just the freedom to not necessarily work in an office building all the time. And I think that that will add economy um, to rural communities and that there's an opportunity there for us to go in and, and really build sustainable service delivery that adds value and lifts those communities up and really kind of makes us stronger as a whole. So, so yeah, that's, you know, that's next year. <laughs> that's the plan for next year. And yeah, if, if international happens alongside that, I, I would be really excited about it. It's probably not our first priority. You know, we want to, you know, let's solve the United States and then let's see what happens. Megan Stackley, thank you so much for joining us on the Webby podcast. You're thank doing you. amazing work. We're excited to be partnering with you. Um, and just thank you again. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much to Megan for stopping by the Webby podcast. The work CompuDopt is doing is incredibly important and is giving students access to new opportunities they didn't previously have. The Webby Awards is also excited to be partnering with CompuDopt and encourages anybody who has devices they are no longer using to visit webbyawards.com to learn more about how you can participate, how to give your laptop or tablet into the hand of a kid who needs it. As always, if you enjoy the Webby podcast, do us a favor and leave a review. 
For more information about the Webby Awards and how to enter, visit webbyawards.com. That's W-E-B-B-Y awards.com. And on most social platforms at The Webby Awards. You can reach me on social at DMD Likes. Our producer is Taylor Griffin. Our editorial lead is Jordana Jarrett. Music is Poddington Bear. Terrence Brosnan is our editor. Claire Graves is a one Madison Park holiday dinner waiting to happen. I'm your host, David Michelle Davies, and this is The Webby Podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.